Director Ebon, thank you very much for joining us today on Politics and Media 101. I'm just going to get right into it. Can you describe what USTDA is? We have a lot of international listeners, US listeners, and I bet very few have heard about the critical mission you all are doing at USTDA. Well, thank you so much, Justin. It's such a pleasure to be with you. I'm excited to be here. First, I'll start with what USTDA stands for. It is the US Trade and Development Agency. We were stood up as an independent agency in 1992. And Congress gave us uh, uh, two mandates. Uh, one was to uh, promote uh, the development of high quality infrastructure um, and to promote U.S. private sector participation in development, infrastructure development projects in developing and middle income countries around the world. And the second was to identify opportunities for exports of U.S. goods, technologies to those projects that we support. That was how our dual mission, our dual mandate, if you are, if you will, was born. Our objective is to promote the development of high-quality infrastructure overseas in developing and middle-income countries, and at the same time, to bring uh, U.S. solutions in terms of technologies, goods, and services to those projects that we support. Um, we do this in a number of ways, which I'll get into, but that is the nuts and bolts of what the mission of this agency is. Help overseas partners make the best infrastructure de investment decisions that they can uh, and bring U.S. solutions to those decisions. So before we get into specifics about projects, whether they be roads, water, any other type of infrastructure, your background is relatively unique for an agency head. So for folks in the audience, most agency heads tend to be political in nature. You have governors, you have mayors, you have a bunch of other folks that really don't maybe have the prerequisite experience to run an agency from the subject matter. However, you were a career official at USCDA, and, and that means that you were not on the political side. There's two different sides. There's for our audience, there's the political side and then the career side. The career folks stay throughout administrations. They're really the institutional knowledge of an agency. They are the life and breath and blood and arteries of an agency that helps America run consistently on these plans and trajectories for years and years and years. So you have all of this knowledge. Can you help us understand the benefits of having this career experience and then bringing it to such an executive position in the agency. What do you understand that maybe other folks wouldn't if they weren't career folks with this wealth of knowledge? Oh, I think it's such an interesting question because it is true. It's not very typical for a career civil servant then to come and be the politically appointed head of the agency. But I think that it's a good place to be in because in terms of what I bring is not only the technical understanding of the mission, so what we do and how we do it. I was, I should tell the listeners, with the agency uh, for almost 15 years 
as a career civil servant. I came in, I often say, and I'll get into trouble for saying this, but as a bit of a law firm refugee, I was a securities lawyer before I came to the agency. But I'd always had the sense that I was interested in international work. And I had grown up, I was born in Nigeria. Um, my mother was from the Caribbean island of St. Vincent. So we would hear stories of hurricanes and volcano eruptions. And I understood the challenge of consistent electricity or water. Um, and so there was always an interest but then came to the agency as a lawyer and uh, really learned all aspects of the agency's work in that role. Um, everything from the operations, so the contracting, the finance, the administration, the personnel, to the programming. So how do we fulfill our mission in the sectors that we are focused in, in, in clean energy, in transportation, in ICT? And how do we resolve issues that come up in the execution of both? So it really was the best training, actually, um, in many ways. I think people bring to this position a lot of different experiences. Um, I think it's a positive to be able to bring that that knowledge that can move the work and the mission forward in a fairly short order, not a huge uh, um, ramp up in terms of learning the agency, but rather concentrating then on being responsive to the various priorities that the administration has put forward and building that external engagement um, so necessary in an agency like this. Our partners are overseas and U.S. industry. And so there's a great deal of focus that has to go on building those relationships and growing them. So I would say that being able to start and hit the ground running because that in-depth knowledge of the agency was there, but then focus on sort of the vision of how do we then respond to where we find as an agency. This agency is extraordinarily flexible uh, because of the way we were stood up. Um, and so we're able to very quickly and nimbly respond to um, priorities. And that's where the focus has been since April when I came on board. That's a pretty quick confirmation too. It sounds like the transition period from administrations was mitigated largely uh, due to your experience other agencies during the Trump administration, I'm thinking infamously State Department, DOD, DOJ were all hollowed out because there was almost a war against the career folks. So a lot of that institutional knowledge was just gutted. Did you experience uh, the same thing at USTDA or were folks at this agency relatively exempt from that? And if you did, how has been rebuilding the institutional knowledge part looked? We were so fortunate at USTDA because our staff, by and large, remained remained intact, remained focused on the mission. And I, I met many of the same people I had known as a, a career civil servant back at the agency, and they were raring to go. It's a, it's a really wonderfully committed and passionate staff that we have here. 
And uh, in fact, they had been working. I did not get here. I came here first in an acting capacity in February of 21, um, but was not nominated until October of 21. So I was the caretaker for a few months there in 21. And I met a staff that were ready to go. They had already figured out, well, we need to be focused on the, on, on the focus on the climate crisis. And here's some ideas as to how we can uh, accomplish that. And uh, it was only a case of bringing out and presenting uh, all of the administration priorities and then getting to work, really, um, as to fulfilling them. And I am very grateful for the, the staff that we have here and for their, their own sense of um, uh, mission, uh, very mission-focused and their sense of collaboration and working well in the interagency to accomplish the goals. So uh, very, very fortunate and grateful in that regard. So you mentioned administration priorities. The Biden administration has been dealt uh, quite a difficult hand with, I could rattle them off, Ukraine, the pandemic, uh, and they've gotten a lot of things through Congress. But one thing we haven't heard, despite having great appointee at USTR, Catherine Tai, and she's been praised. We've had USTR folks from the Trump administration on our show, from the Obama administration. She's been widely praised. That leads us to our question, though. Is the Biden administration prioritizing trade and then also trade and development? Because we just haven't heard much about it. Absolutely, the administration is. And uh, I think that you can see it in uh, many of the Focai, I guess, on on different priorities. So, for example, uh, you may have heard, your listeners may have heard of the um, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. There's a trade cone to that. I just came off of a an amazing set of meetings with Pacific Island country leaders last week, um, where the administration hosted 14 leaders across the Pacific Island countries. And we talked about everything from trade uh, to infrastructure, our area of focus. You see it also in our strategies uh, toward Africa and in the Indo-Pacific. So I am not in any way going to steal Ambassador Tai's thunder. She is so much better qualified to speak on these matters. But I can tell you that in all of the interagency engagements that I've been engaged in, it is absolutely there in the context of the both subject matter sort of priorities and the regional priorities that we talk about. I do come from the perspective of how do we get our uh, our companies, our technologies engaged in the early project preparation for infrastructure development. As we've discussed, I think um, a bit earlier, infrastructure is a prerequisite for trade, particularly in the areas that we focus, clean energy, transportation, uh, information communications technology. Um, and I'll even put in there, and we've a growing portfolio uh, on healthcare infrastructure, but you need all of these components for healthy, viable, economically stable com countries and communities. 
you mentioned earlier and, and just now that you focus on developing the infrastructure so that trade can be possible in areas. And then previously, you mentioned you focus on identifying opportunities. So let's start with the opportunities part. Um, I always find that an example is easiest for us to understand actually what that means. So it doesn't have to be from your time as the agency head director. It could be from your 15 years experience, but can you give us and walk us through an example of USTDA saying, hey, this is a great opportunity for us. So how did you identify the opportunity? What was the opportunity? And then how did you express it and work with the private sector? Thank you. I, I think it's you're absolutely right. Um, examples uh, help, uh, I think, to crystallize the kind of work. Um, and I'll start out with two examples. And later on, we can talk about the tools because they're different tools to developing infrastructure projects. Um, everything from feasibility studies to technical assistance and pilot projects. So testing the viability of a concept or idea to partnership building kind of activities so that our companies can build relationships with um, project sponsors overseas. So to give um, uh, an example from the sort of feasibility study part of things, and I'll choose one that's a little old before my time as director, but I think important and representative of really some of the sort of ambitious and consequential kind of work that we do. So back in 2008, 2009, the country of Lithuania was looking to diversify their sources of energy. They believed that to have true sovereignty in their decision-making, they had to have independence in their sources of energy um, as the topic that is so in front of mind today. So back then, they wanted to build a, an LNG import terminal to be able to kind of established that independence so that they weren't just reliable on Russian gas. This needed a feasibility study, an activity that would um, do two things. One, help to set them up to make the best choices as to how to go forward doing this. Um, and the second would be to unlock the financing necessary to build. And then Along the way, how do we make sure that we get the best front-end engineering design, etc.? So USTDA heard this opportunity. They came to us and we said, yes, at, this, at that time, this makes total sense. Did Lithuania bring this to you or did like ExxonMobil? The Lithuanians did. Okay. And that is, it's a good question because that goes to that, well, how do we, how do we find these projects? And we find them in a number of ways. This one came to us. Um, we do active business development with staff overseas as well. And we work very much with our colleagues in the interagency, um, the U.S. Foreign Commercial Service, for example, to, to, to develop, um, other ideas. But this one, they came to us and they had a sense of, companies that might they might like to work with. Sometimes partners like that come with a company. Otherwise, they'll come with the idea or we'll, we'll develop the idea and then we compete. We put it out for companies to, to, to do it. 
Here, uh, SAIC, Science Application International Corporation, did the feasibility study work. That was in 2009. The Lithuanians then went on, having had engagement with U.S. and what we could provide. They then went on to choose a U.S. company to do the feed study, the front-end engineering design. Uh, that company was Floor. And the terminal came on board, came online in 2014. Today, that terminal is not only um, importing uh, LNG from the U.S., but it is providing LNG to countries like Latvia, um, like Estonia, others in the region um, who have made a stand with respect to their independence um, from sources of energy. That's a kind of example of a consequential and early, you get in early, you do that early work. It's going to take a number of years to come online, but it has been um, truly significant in what it has been able to do in terms of impact. Our investment, if you will, i.e., we are grant-based, so we provided a grant there to do this study, was around $800,000. But how much did it leverage? It leveraged $235 million, which was the financing needed to stand it up. So if that gives you an example of opportunities, of U.S. engagement, of what we can leverage with, you know, not exorbitant amounts of U.S. funding, which is very important. Um, we want to be economical in this, but the idea is to leverage the financing that they can see the project executed to great impact, which we are experiencing today. That's a very timely example, especially with everything that's going on, obviously, with Russia and Ukraine and energy. And uh, looks like they were uh, very smart in Lithuania to reach out to you folks to become more energy dependent. Now, when working in Eastern Europe and, and other parts of the world, corruption is a, a big concern. And I know that you're focused on feasibility studies and really paving the pathway for future in investment. But is there any corruption controls that are done or any, I don't know, background checks uh, to ensure that um, the feasibility studies that you're doing for future large projects, $200 million projects or whatever, that it doesn't pave the pathway for misuse of US government funds or any funds for that matter? It's such an important question and um, is the reason why we have a number of criteria for the projects that we will provide funding to. And amongst them, and I'll just actually name them so that your listeners are aware. So there has to be, first and foremost, a project sponsor that can implement the project. Um, and so we look at the viability from the project sponsor's point of view. The project has to have a potential to get financing. Now, that that viability, full viability, is part of our feasibility study work. But we look to see early on, you know, is this something that could, all things being equal, attract financing? There has to be a developmental impact and a, a large-scale developmental impact. 
And there has to be the potential for exports. That goes back to our mandate in the beginning. That's in our statute. And so that potential to see U.S. exports is key. Uh, There has to be, and we do very stringent due diligence to answer your question directly. We want to make sure that we are engaging with responsible, with reputation, really strong partners. Uh, and so our due diligence process is quite extensive um, to be able to secure that. In addition, we work closely and in, in, in collaboration with other U.S. agencies that are focused on corruption and anti-corruption exercises. You know, USAID does a lot of work in this area. And so if any questions or difficulties come up, um, we make sure to connect with our colleagues um, on these issues. I will also add that we um, take a rather holistic approach to infrastructure development. So as I've talked about, we will work on the project preparation side, on the partnership building side, but we'll also take a look to see, okay, is there is there anything else we should be doing here to help um, this landscape of infrastructure development and make sure our partners are investing in the best? And one of our initiatives, our global procurement initiative, came out of out of that kind of exercise. Um, and there we are engaged in training procurement officials on the best practices for procurement. As you know, that can be an area um, uh, for, uh, uh, for anti-corruption. And there we've been working with our sister agencies there, but we're also interested in making sure that our partners understand life cycle cost analysis, best value determinations, other internationally recognized ways of procurement, um, which really helps to level the playing field for not only our companies, frankly, but for companies who are interested in fair and open international tenders where they can compete. We take the gamut of making sure that we are engaging with the best um, partners and making sure that we have the guardrails around our grant funding so that it is executed and used to the best possible standards. There are a bunch of follow-ups I want to ask because you hit on uh, some very important issues here and, and things that I think would be very valuable to dive deeper into. But let's start with how you work with your agency sisters and brothers. So for our audience, they they understand what USTR is, right? That's the agency that goes and negotiates trade deals, WTO, enforcement. Um, Then there's USAID, which you just touched on. What comes to my mind is the Millennial Challenge Corporation, which is also a grant program. And for our audience, it was set up under George W. Bush. And that is a, I think, a really fantastic program that focuses on good governance. It is. Yes. So I have experience from the private sector working with those folks. But basically, if you read, and the criteria was reworked uh, about five years ago, a few years ago. But essentially, if if you're a country and you hit a scorecard for rule of law, a bunch of different things, so, uh, transparency, anti-corruption, and we could go on and on. 
you will be eligible for grant programs on infrastructure. So like water and stuff like that. So I was wondering when a big grant is given out or when USTR does something with a country and starts a new trade deal or wants to even look into a new trade deal. Can you walk us through how you work with these other agencies on the front end of projects to get to the back end? Absolutely. And I'll throw in, not to add to the alphabet soup, but I'll throw in a couple of other agencies as well. I want to throw in Exim, which is our Export-Import Bank of the United States. I also want to throw in DFC, which is our U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. And these, along with MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, um, are, are sister agencies of ours. I'm also going to mention the Department of Commerce and some of our technical agencies, the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation. I'm sure your listeners are exhausted by this point. So let me try and get to the point here. We're giving them the true DC experience acronyms. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry for that. But hopefully I, I added the actual names as well. So um, yes, to just touch on how and describe a little bit how we might work uh, together. And uh, I will start out with MCC as you named them then DFC and Exim. So for us, it's very important, this enabling, this environment, right, for, for infrastructure, um, which MCC is so expert at creating through this, through their systems of these very important areas, whether it's governance or education, corruption, just very critical work through their compacts through their agreements with countries to focus on these things and that way open the door to um, to infrastructure development. So a lot of our work with them will be keeping track of where they are providing compacts, um, when those compacts are getting ready to close, bringing uh, I didn't talk about our reverse trade missions, which are ways in which we bring delegations to the United States as they're at the cusp of procurement for their infrastructure to meet with our U.S. companies who are providing uh, state-of-the-art technologies, also to meet with financiers, because, you, you again, I can't stress the financing enough, and also to meet with regulators and policy experts, because that is the whole universe of what you need for sound infrastructure development. So we will coordinate and know when the right point is through MCC's work to be bringing delegations. We will also actually, in conjunction with them, we will get a sense of, okay, are there is there a project here that we can be uh, of assistance with? So MCC is a strong partner in that sense. With respect to our sister agencies who provide financing, and I put in those categories, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, or EXIM, and the DFC, with respect to EXIM, they provide the financing for U.S. exports. So anything that's manufactured here, they will provide the financing for, and it could be through commercial guarantees, insurance guarantees, different ways. They're an export credit agency, essentially. So they um, have the ability to finance, which we do not do. We provide grants. Um, and so they, and it's an important relationship because, again, if we are feeding their pipeline into what they might finance, 
it makes sure that our projects can be implemented. Um, and we do have uh, examples of where they've financed work that we have been engaged with. The DFC is, again, a financier, but with respect to bringing private sector investment into um, development projects. They're a development finance institution, so they're engaged in those projects which will enhance the development of partner countries, uh, developing countries, middle-income countries, but they are focused on the private sector and bringing their investment. You know, I talked about USDA bringing the participation of our private sector and that's very distinct from investment, right? So for participation, it's the technologies, it's the engagement in developing these projects. Um, it is in bringing uh, solutions, whereas DFC is crowding in private sector investment into projects. But it's important for us to connect with them and work with them as well, because we are, what are we doing? We're developing projects. And so there might be um, those um, uh, instances in which we dovetail and a project of ours is one that they can finance. So we all engage in the interagency. Our staffs are intersecting and interacting a lot to say, this is what we're doing. Is this feasible for you? Could you finance this? Um, making sure that we have the totality of project preparation, investment, financing, and the kind of environments in terms of governance, democracy, education that we all know to be critical for economic development um, of our partner countries. And so that is how we work together. I would just say that for um, USTR, as they are focused on trade policy, there may be instances, and we've worked with them in this way in the past, where there can be practical projects or activities, whether it is training in standards, um, that will actually give uh, substance, give the underpinnings, move those policy discussions along in a very practical way. So that is something that we've engaged in and we continue to work with to see if there are opportunities for that. And then finally, with our technical experts, our technical agencies like DOE, Department of Energy or Department of Transportation, we really couldn't do what we do without their expertise. Um, and so we are often um, coordinating with, um, traveling with, working with um, our colleagues in DOE and DOT um, as they bring expertise to the kinds of projects um, and training that we facilitate for our partners overseas as well. So I think we've done a great job of setting the table and our alphabet soup has been leading us to this part of the conversation. The Belt and Road Initiative in China is infamous or famous, depending on which uh, side you want to view it on. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats acknowledge that there is a competition with China. The Belt and Road Initiative has spurred a lot of fear in, in the West about 
trade almost as a weapon of, of some sort uh, by the Chinese. And, and I wanted to just quickly uh, review what we've discussed and then get into the topic a little bit more. So we discussed USTR, which goes and negotiates deals. We've discussed MCC, which picks out countries and values we want to prop up. We've discussed the financing from XM and other agencies. And then we've discussed your agency as well, which is instrumental in the front end to go into a place where we do have a trade agreement, where we don't, maybe we want one. And it seems like there's some type of comprehensive approach here from the United States, despite the PRC, for example, leveraging criticism that our government is all over the place because it changes every four years. So that is to say, relative to the Belt and Road Initiative, which is under one umbrella, how do you compare the United States government's approach to trade from whether we are as comprehensive and well-planning, for example, as an authoritarian government like the PRC? Mm, That is, gosh, that's a... That's that's a big one, Justin. That really is. And I think what I would say is that we first and foremost distinguish ourselves by the way in which we partner and we approach working with our partners overseas. I see this from USTDA's perspective and really also in the context of the administration of, yes, we recognize that there is competition. We are here. I'm going to make no bones about it uh, to make sure that our companies have opportunities to work uh, and to produce and to bring solutions to infrastructure challenges in developing a middle income countries all over the world. So so I, I live in a in a context of competition. And I think that what we have made clear and what the US government is making clear is that, you know, you have alternatives. We are very adamant on the point that our partners absolutely get to choose, but we are providing distinct alternatives alternatives in the context of the quality of what we bring and alternatives in the context also um, of the way in which we partner. So we are not there to extract resources or to put our um, our people in place in terms of labor and we want there to be fair labor rights, we're certainly not putting our um, our we're not building our capacity in partner countries. Um, we are genuinely interested in understanding the priorities of our partners and um, giving them a true set of options to fulfill them. We are also interested in building capacity uh, so that these investments that our partners make are sustainable over time. Certainly, it's my experience when I travel, whether it is to Latin America, Caribbean, or to Sub-Saharan Africa, or to the Indo-Pacific, or even as last week with the leaders of the Pacific Island countries who have very clear partners uh, overseas, they want to partner with the United States. This is very clear. And 
I think that it is not our responsibility to leverage that goodwill, to leverage that interest. We do it again by the technologies, our innovation, our creativity. And then we have to do it in a way that everybody is aware of the suite of what we offer as the US government. I think that's where we can always improve, right? Is making it clear how we work together, because I think that sometimes people think we just do not work together. Nothing could be furthest from the truth. We do work together. I think we haven't always been very visible about it. Uh, And I think that we could do well to do more of that. We have to be creative. I want to come back to the innovation and creativity because we cannot compete here in sort of necessarily kind of dollar amounts that 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 PRC might be putting in, but um, I think if I if I just touch on one or two ways in which we could creatively address some of the imbalance here, I think that that helps. One is you know again this getting in early with the project preparation because part of what we do is is setting the standards for infrastructure investments, and if we don't set those standards up competitors certainly will. And so I think the approach of getting in early, building the relationships and um, making sure that there's a foundation on which to partner so that the natural orientation towards the U.S. is actually solidified, um, I think is is a really important way to do this. I think if I look at some of our other tools, Um, This global procurement initiative, which helps to educate on the fact that, you know, the lowest cost is not always going to be the best answer for you. Um, As a colleague of mine always used to say, there's nothing cheap about buying something twice. And so if you want to um, really understand and understand in in partnership the, the, the value of your investment, I think that's a smart way to be able to address some of the competition issues. I think also the tools that we have, we can help our companies who are in head-to-head competition with state-owned enterprises, um, you know, famously from China. Um, and I'll give you just a quick example of that. Moving data on sub, through subsea cables, I think, is, is a very important part of tele- tele- telecommunications there was several over a year ago now an important move to create a new subsea uh, cable that would join Singapore with France, like all the way through, um, touching Africa through Asia to Europe. And it's called SMW6. It's that stands for Southeast Asia, Middle East. Western Europe, uh, but it does touch through Africa as well. And, you know, a U.S. company called Subcom uh, Corporation LLC was in competition with HMN Technologies, formerly Huawei Marine. And what we did was to be able to offer training, again, coming back to capacity building, um, training for uh, five members of the consortium that were responsible for standing up this subsea fiber optic cable that was going to be taking a lot of data across the world. I want to stress that it's very, very important to have security with respect to data. 
and you just said Huawei, so that would be the literally the Chinese government. So this is a national security issue, folks. Exactly. And so we offered this training, what we call a training grant to say, if you select our U.S. company who is competing with Huawei, we will train uh, your your people to be able to sustain and work this investment over time. And they selected Subcom. And uh, this is a New Jersey company. They were able to attain a significant contract to do this work. And this was another whole of government approach where the Commerce Department, the State Department, um, our colleagues and other agencies worked along with us to be able to make sure that this offer was made and it was a good result. And I would add a secure result. And I have to add also that the technologies will be in large part manufactured in New Hampshire. So again, coming back to our mandate, it's really about being smart, being creative, being visible in the way we work and building the relationships because everybody is focused. And I think President Biden really was so far seeing when way back in February of 21, he talked about, and he, he did this um, in a speech at the Africa Union, sort of mutual benefit of our work, of all of us being engaged in this together. He talked of partnership and he talked about our common prosperity. I think this is a, um, a really distinguishing feature and I think if we can continue to work purposefully uh, and all in the same direction, which we are doing within the interagency, that we can help to address this very, yeah, it's a real competitive threat. Thomas Hobbes is smiling in his grave with all of this talk of competition, while the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you know, it's uplifting some communities that are developing, and there's a lot of focus on it. Uh, it's also a debt trap for many communities. And then also the Chinese government, maybe they could use a USTDA because there's a ton of failed investments. They're wasting tens, hundreds of billions of dollars. For example, there's a railroad in Kenya that they've stopped building and it literally just stops in the middle of nowhere. So that is to say they've done very well in the public relations sector, less so in the investment sector. But that leads me to my next question here. So we are concerned about the Belt and Road Initiative because of the influence that trade has on these nations and them getting closer to China and maybe moving away from the United States. So from your work and also from your discussions with diplomats and just your point of view, what type of benefit do you see strong trade relations, strong projects that you're working on and positive results outside nations, maybe some African countries? What benefit does that bring to the United States strategically from an international relations perspective? I have to say, first of all, that the benefit um, from uh, to, to the United States, certainly from USTDA's perspective, because I'm always struck, again, by, by the duality of our mission. And, and I, I do want to make the point, first off, that, you know, we're, I think, the only foreign assistance agency with a mandate to support 
jobs through exports. So there is a very tangible benefit to the American people. I always think of the American people first. I'll come back to international. But that was I've been I've been trying to ask that because yeah. there's al- always a war, like it, especially in politics, with trades taking away jobs. So I would assume that you think that trade is creating jobs in America. Certainly, we are supporting, creating high and good paying jobs um, in the context of the work that we do, because as we open the markets and bring the opportunities in overseas markets to our companies, to our industries, they are able to grow and they're able to support jobs. It is very important to us in the pursuit of our mission. It is part of the criteria that we look at. What is the potential um, for exports and for job uh, creation and support? And so in a very real sense, through the U.S. Trade and Development Agency's work, um, our everyday Americans stand to benefit directly from foreign assistance. It is true in a way that I think is is very stark and very real. And and, and I, I would always point to that as a threshold benefit. I think in the in the in terms of uh, international relations, uh, it's very important for our partners in Africa and I'll start with Africa, you 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 mentioned it, um, really to to understand clearly and the 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 Secretary of State, Secretary Blinken, I was there in South Africa when he uh launched the US strategy toward Africa. Um it, it is um our partners want to know where we stand and what our perspective is. Not surprisingly, there's been a lot of confusion through the prior administration on that. And Secretary Blinken and this administration has been very clear in resetting, and it is a resetting because our relationship and partnerships have been strong, resetting and restating that that import of Africa, not just as a continent of issues to be resolved. We don't see it that way at all. We see a continent of innovation, of creativity, of adaptation, of amazing resilience that we need to be seeking out on issues that impact the whole world. Um, that in, there may be issues of national security, there might be issues um, of the war in Ukraine. We are seeing our partners as equals. And uh, I think that the work that we all do is geared towards emphasizing that and not only emphasizing, but demonstrating it through our work. And so it's very important for us, particularly um, in this administration, in this time that we are, to really and I, again, President Biden spoke of it well when he talked at the beginning of his, his administration, which we've been playing out, of establishing U.S. leadership globally. People want it. They want to see it. And I think it is important for us in the international relations context to demonstrate it and act on it. Um, important things happen um, when we do that, uh, I, we only need to point to most recently the president's and the administration's 
um, forwardness in Ukraine. We only have to point to this presence and this administration's front forwardness with respect to climate. We only have to look to what we've been doing with respect to infrastructure overseas. I am keeping within my bailiwick of international, um, I could, I, but we've been seeing it domestically as well. Bipartisan infrastructure deal, Inflation Reduction Act. The CHIPS and Science Act. And so I, I, I want to give respect to my colleagues and not, not wander into territories that aren't mine, but accept that they are important to me because it, it, that we are going to be set to, with all the investment in research, in technological development, um, it's going to be inevitable that people want those overseas. And so um, it is important to us. Um, it is important to our standing overseas. And I am just incredibly grateful um, that we are on this path as set by the Biden administration. People love to be negative about America, whether it's Americans or folks outside the world. So let's get into some of the positive. The Biden administration has done an amazing work with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which will you know improve our roadways, improve our energy infrastructure, improve our rail transit so that we can manufacture goods better. We can transport them to ports and airports and then get them overseas. And then we can export the human talent and the knowledge that we have uh, from your agency and, and other agencies and and work to develop domestic infrastructure in the countries that we're working in. So like Kenya, the Dem- Democratic Republic of Congo, I'm going off of Africa because we were just discussing it and it's a big concern because of China. And, and then the Build Back Better with the energy uh, provisions and then the chips so that we can reshore um, the high-tech manufacturing of all of these uh, very essential computer components that will allow us to build cars and computers and um, a whole host of other things. So we're really just putting in investments to power up our exports and our ability internationally, also domestically. I come back to a quote from Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain for for others. It seems like the um, reports of uh, the demise of our hegemon have been greatly exaggerated. So I love that. I I, I wanted to dig in there. The last administration was hell-bent, it seemed, on deteriorating all of our relations, calling countries shitholes, pardon my language, but that's a quote from the president, a former president. I know USTDA is very technical and has your focus, but you're also a diplomat in, in a lot of ways. So um, when you're dealing with these other world leaders um, and the Biden administration is attempting this reset, how receptive have they been? And it, has it been a, a wait and see or a full embrace? Can you explain the process of rebuilding these relationships? First of all, I, I, I will say that there is a sense of relief. I, I think that there is a sense of they can expect directness, they can expect transparency, and they can expect honesty and respectful dialogue. Uh, this is something that in, in my interactions um, has been clear. People are glad that we are back. People are glad that we are willing and want to partner. Um, I feel so proud to be able to represent the United States 
um, in delegations which reflect the diversity of the country that we are. And our partners notice it. Our partners even comment on it. I, I sat across a leader who said, we were concerned for your democracy. And we see it as a, uh, a an important beacon. So we are glad <laughs> that you are here. Um, I've also seen uh, leaders across the U.S. government be very frank about the work that we have to do. Um, again, the president has been very clear about the work that we need to do in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And again, partners take note. But we're also honest about the work that needs to be done. So the reception has been so positive um, in that there is uh, a willingness, most of all, to engage on the pressing issues of the day. And the fact that we are present, we are engaged, we listen. We often make the point that we are first and foremost listening. We did it just last week again with the Pacific Island country leaders. Um, and I think that there is that sense of thank goodness we can get on with all of the, as I said, pressing issues, and the United States is here and not shrinking away from its leadership. In fact, on the contrary, embracing it and empowering all of us in the executive branch, agencies like ours and others, to really implement on the policies, on the priorities that have been set on climate, on infrastructure, um, and on um, the various regional strategies that we're working on. So I have to say to that question of what the reception is like, people are so pleased that we are back. And um, again, it is with immense pride that I represent this country, our agency, our work, our people in so many corners of the world. Sounds like America is still a shining city on a hill. I mean, your responses are just eliciting uh, very positive emotions from me and making me uh, feel very proud to be American. So we've touched on the technical aspects we've touched on from what you actually do. We've touched on the theoretical aspects, whether it be from your agency's perspective or your perspective on international relations and America's standing in the world. Um, now, let's get into your priorities. So you've hit on infrastructure and climate change. I'd love to start with climate change because it's a buzzword. We all understand something needs to be done, but what does that mean? So politically, folks are black and white, right? So um, they either think it's all renewables or a war on fossil fuels. I've heard you mention LNG, which is a fossil fuel. So help me understand your agency's priorities with climate change and how things like LNG fit in and fossil fuels. So important. 
First, in terms of the agency's work, um, uh, actually, we've worked in clean energy for many years. Um, also energy. I mean, that LNG project was part of our past portfolio. We're oriented a little bit differently now, but I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Um, with respect to climate, um, we are focused on everything from uh, renewables to what new technologies there might be even, for example, in the nuclear space, we've done some interesting work with respect to small modular reactors, because that is a clean source of energy. And really quickly, um, because nuclear is so important, uh, and I'm a proponent of it, I think John is as well. How has the reception with your overseas partners been on nuclear? Because there's NIMBY movement in the United States. I don't know if that's the same in the countries that you're working in. So I think that um, it's really interesting. I think that the, and it's understandable, it's it's scary, but there's a lot of facts around that, that people do need to sort of educate themselves around, um, myself included. I have gone through that process very much so. And those concerns with respect to consumers and populations still exist. And uh, I, I've been speaking to members of the nuclear industry um, and, you know, they understand the responsibility that they have to be able to articulate um, and go to constituents and stakeholders and uh, talk about uh, the, the fears, the concerns and how, for example, um, uh, small modular reactors, what they do, how they work, um, how some of the newer technologies with respect to reactors, uh, like the AP1000, which is out of Westinghouse, which, um, you know, we're supporting a project in Poland who was interested in diversifying their energy source and looking at the first nuclear power plant there uh, using this AP1000 technology. And so they are well aware and everybody's well aware of the continued an important dialogue there has to be with people that live uh, in communities. Um, but the facts are that it's actually one of the safest um, uh, sources of, of energy. But I do think that there has to be more dialogue, communication, education around that. It is something that we are working on uh, to your answers, to your questions, to how our partners face it with, with partners that have that have come to us, like Ukraine, uh, like um, Poland, uh, and also in Romania. In those instances, we are doing a lot of the early sort of project preparation work as to what you would need to be able to put in place a small modular reactor, what you'd need licensing-wise or um, sort of regulatory, uh, in a regulatory sense. Um, so that work is is being done and it is part of the full picture. Um, but I understand the, the fear and the concern, but I think that we all have to take a very rational, very logical, very fact-based approach um, to understanding uh, the, the, the uh, pros and the cons and just talking um, uh talking it through, because that's what I certainly need to do in terms of this research analysis and determinations that need to be made. 
to be able to fund these projects. And we don't do it um, without the most careful of analyses. And, and this is an area, for example, where our colleagues from the Department of Energy are fully engaged, as well as our department, uh, our colleagues from the National Regulatory Commission, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, in uh, helping to make these determinations. So that's um that's an important point. I'm I'm glad you raised it, and it goes it definitely goes hand in hand with all the work we're doing in renewables as well. Yes, and, and I so rudely cut you off, but I was just very curious about nuclear. So you had mentioned that your portfolio had shifted a little bit. You started to discuss nuclear. How else does the climate change portfolio rack up? So it racks up clearly in the renewable space. I recently uh, signed a really interesting grant with a private um, entity in the Philippines that is going to be able to look at offshore wind possibilities. Um, I signed that on a trip, actually, Secretary Blinken w- witnessed that grant um, agreement, and it, it's a, it's a, it's preparing the work, doing the kind of analysis that could see up to um, three gigawatts of wind energy in the Philippines. So that's an important example. We have interesting hybrid projects, a solar wind battery uh, storage project in India. Um, We have been doing a lot um, of work looking at electric vehicles in the Pacific and so we are looking at across the boards, whether it's energy efficiency, energy resiliency, what we can do with respect to um, dealing with emergency climate situations. This is important for our island economies. And so in the Pacific, but also in the Caribbean, um, uh, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that they're prepared for climate emergencies? So this is the the kind of work on the climate side um, we're doing. It's all under the umbrella of our partnership for climate smart infrastructure that we set up. Actually, the president launched it in April of 21. And there we've already funded up to about $30 million of activities, uh, which we hope will unlock about $64 billion in financing. So this is the hope. We definitely, you know, develop these projects very carefully. We think that they can leverage quite a quite a significant amount of climate financing. We're orienting towards renewables because that, I mean, we're following the money. There's a lot of money available for financing of these kinds of projects. Um, with respect to, I do want to touch on the gas the gas portfolio because that did shift. But I want to say that we are also aware, as our administration is, of the need for a just uh, energy transition, right? You know, there's not a blanket prohibition against uh, doing uh, gas projects, but it does have to be something that will be of a national security, of a across-the-board interagency approach. Um, and I think that's where we definitely don't want to, I think, say um, absolutely never, but I think that we have to hold ourselves to high levels of criteria for engaging in these kinds of projects because, frankly, the uh, crisis is real. 
And so we do have to change the trajectory of how we work, how we approach things, but we have to be um, wide-eyed and rational about um, if and when there rises those occasions where it does make sense to do something, just as we saw recently with Ukraine. Yeah, so so it sounds like then for the fossil fuels or gas, however we want to term it, that it's uh, emergencies, national security, and then potentially investments to ease the transition? It's a, a fragile. Um, another way I would say that is, uh, you know, uh, in in fragile nation states, you know, I think there we just we have to we have to look. We just have to look. Yeah, you can't have people starving right. or freezing to death. Right. With no power. And we interviewed um, from the Progressive Change Campaign. It's like an organization that drafted Elizabeth Warren. It's a very big progressive organization during the outbreak of the Cold War. And he basically said, drill, baby, drill, because he didn't want, um, even though they're obviously all in on renewables, they they understand the transition gas prices were like five bucks. And for our audience, Europe has been hit way harder than us with all these supply chain issues. So I just have a couple questions before we wrap. So a couple to do with Congress and then and then one more broad one. You do identify regions, nation states to invest in. And you said sometimes they identify themselves. Do American politicians in Congress and our attitudes toward other countries for better or worse impact uh, the p- projects that you at USTDA embark on? I have to say, Justin, we have, and we are so fortunate to have good relations on the Hill, and we continue to build them. I think that our mandate, and and I always say, Congress had the foresight to create this agency with this dual mandate, with 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 outcomes that are infrastructure development and economic development focused, but also providing um, opportunities for jobs and exports. So I think it's the kind of mission and the kind of work that they instinctively understand and can get behind. Um, So while we definitely go up and engage and talk about our work and they ask really good questions about what we're doing, um, we have been very fortunate in the support that we have um, in the work that we're doing. And I, I want to, it's it's one of the things I absolutely want to make sure that we continue to build those relationships. It's critically um, important. And I, I want to, to, to get the members out to, to see our projects and to um, visit their constituents who have benefited from our work. I think it's really important um, to, to do that. So I, I will say absolutely the, the response to the agency and its work is so good and so positive. Uh, and we have been very much through our committees of jurisdiction, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, our Appropriations Committee, I think really, really, truly um, uh, fortunate in, in the response that we have had as an agency and, and to our work. If members of Congress or a committee are strongly favoring a nation, does that make it more likely that you will research and try and find development opportunities? How does the political aspect, right? Because you know, you're still an agency, so you have to be influenced by politics. How does it influence the projects that you do? 
So honestly, my and maybe some of your listeners will find this hard to believe, but it actually doesn't. <laughs> Seriously, I'm 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 really being very honest here. Um, you know, I think you know it, it may rest in the fact that our work is very data driven, right? We 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 decide on the regions on the world that we're working in. And the countries, just because we can't work in every single country, the countries that we are prioritizing, but it's all based on um, market data, on industry data, on the needs that we see from overseas. So I, I think when we go, we we present the information and somehow, maybe it's just we're really good at our work, it is actually those countries and regions that we're working on very consistent with areas of interest um, of our, our committees of jurisdiction and um, the members and senators on the Hill. Um, and I think that we we work very hard. We do strategic planning annually. We work really hard to make sure that we are current, we are understanding the environment, um, and we're taking account of um, administration priorities as well, even as we develop um, our, our areas of focus. In the end, though, I will say that everything comes back to our establishing statute. And, you know, we can work in developing and middle-income countries. And so that is the basis upon which we go forward. And then we are completely fact and data-driven in how we break it down by region um, following that. So I, this is going to be my second to last question, and that is everybody wants more budget. But I guess if you had more budgets, what would that mean for the American people? And do you have any other like very top priorities from Congress? So um, I think that the demand is it's more than we can meet, right? So um, uh, if, as everybody everybody does want more budget, if we were lucky enough, um, absolutely the, it would go to um, projects that are very worthy projects. I've had to turn away some very worthy projects. Um, so um, I have no doubt that um, budget would be well, well allocated to excellent projects that will have benefit and impact, not just for our partner countries, but for, as we've talked about, American workers as well. Um, so I, I think that that is is really important to state. I am very grateful we have had uh, increases in our budget and that the president um, has put forward for 23 and uh, a strong budget ask for us. So we are ever ready, like everyone else, uh, to do more with more. Let me put it that way. Um, and then with respect to priorities, um, I, I really... I want to say, and we've touched on them, and really, in, in essence, it is the president's priorities, um, but climate, the infrastructure, and again, that, that partnership for global infrastructure investment that the president launched in June with G7 partners, I think is such a strong indication of where we are and where the emphasis is. And this agency, because, I mean, under PGII, as it's called, we have pledged 200 
billion dollars um, to um, to support the the four cones of digital, of climate, of health infrastructure, and then of equity and gender equality in infrastructure. So we are very clear-eyed about what we need to do. And my priorities is making sure that we as an agency with the terrific staff who are so committed um, have what we need to be able to fulfill those priorities. And a second, and it's very relevant and related, is I really do want to make sure that the American people can, you know, stakeholders that we can impact, businesses, whether they be small businesses, diaspora businesses, businesses that can benefit from infrastructure opportunities overseas, know about the agency. And so part of my remit is to get out and about, which is why I'm grateful for the invitation to your podcast get out about and let people know of the terrific work um, and the benefit that an agency like the U.S. Trade Development Agency can bring, not just to partners overseas, but to us here at home as well. Yes, and I'm very. We'll have to have you back in 2023 to to give us an update on some projects. Uh, the the narrative for the agency is really a great one that I've learned from this conversation. It's setting the groundwork to unleash the power of the American economy overseas, which is something that we should all support, Republican, Democrat, Independent, and we have listeners uh, equally across the spectrum. So um, I have to ask, though, um, what have I left out? I know I've left out a lot, but but what do you want to touch on as we wrap up today? It could be your mission, could be anything. I think what I would say is that it is important to know that within the U.S. government, there is this agency that is focused on both uh, doing good and doing well. So we're developing infrastructure overseas, but we're doing it in a way that benefits us at home and in a way that, yes, we are quite ambitious in our projects. They are consequential. Um, we do work um, in the forefront of economic development in emerging economies. Um, but to me, in the end, the import of bringing in what the private sector, our workers, our genius, our creativity, um, our innovation um, has to the rest of the world um, is of utmost importance and that we work together with our colleagues in government to deliver, to deliver for the American people and to deliver for our partners overseas. And I would ask um, your listeners, um, if they are interested, to visit our website to learn more about what we do at USTDA.gov. And we also have an excellent, all the range, Facebook, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, all the ways you want to know about us. But I will say that we're also an agency that is flexible and nimble enough that we will actually talk to you. <laughs> so please... Um, don't hesitate. Uh, we put our information in our staff response first by email. But if you have a pressing idea or you want to run something by or you want to understand a market or you want to understand how your technology can fit in a market, please don't hesitate to reach out and connect with us. 
Well, thank you very much, Director Ibong, for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for inviting me. I'm going to steal at least one of your phrases, <laughs> working from the ground to unleash the power of the economy all over the world. I loved it. And it was such a pleasure to speak with you and to provide information to your listeners.